Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the summer of 2020, a kneeling vigil started on Martha's Vineyard to honor the life of George Floyd. Each day, a group of us would meet and take a knee for 9 minutes and 29 seconds and hear the story of another person killed by police violence. We did this all summer into the fall. From this grew a need for people to continue having conversations about how they were feeling about what was happening to them and around them. These conversations came to be known as salons. And we are fortunate to be joined by the man who started these salons, Awet Gabriel. Awet, welcome to Shed. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm just excited to have this great dialogue with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Awet Gabriel, and I was born in Ethiopia. I came to the U.S. as a refugee. Most of my childhood was in refugee camps and refugee settlements. And currently, I work for the United Nations handling the revenue end for UNICEF, that agency. And in every sense of the word, I've learned what it means to be a black man in America. Coming from Africa, being black was never something I even thought about. Hmm. Race was not something you think about. It's ethnicity is something that you think about. And... um, coming here as a refugee and going to the South and going to school in the South and being in a fraternity that's majority all white men, just learning what it means to be a black man in the system has been kind of, it's it's an amazing thing to just learn that instead of being born into that. And understanding the complexity of that has been just really interesting. What are there any specific memories that you have where you really became aware of race and the different values that were appropriated to the different races here in America? For sure. So I think when I came to the U.S., I thought everyone had the same level of opportunity in terms of education. So I came to the U.S., I got into ESOL classes, which is English for a second language class, learning how to read and everything. And then you go into, they call it college prep, and then you see the difference and the resources that are put in college prep classes, which are predominantly African-American, Latino minorities, and then AP classes, which were all, if not, you know, 100% all white kids. Mm -hmm. So they had the better classrooms, they had the better books, they had the better resources, they had the better teachers. What did you make of those differences? I was shocked. Mm -hmm. And it pushed me to to want to go out of CP and go into AP classes. And it was so clear to me. I think that's the privilege of coming in to the system Mm -hmm. where you can see it clearer, where you're just not living through it, where you're like, oh, I 
I see the difference and I see how the system treats people. And you can step back and say, okay, I need to navigate navigate the system effectively. Mm -hmm. But it was so clear how disadvantaged the people of color and children of color were in a system, in a, one school system that, you know, that you're like, wow, how could this happen? And the same leadership was there. It's not like there was two different principles of these schools. It mm -hmm. was... It was a purposeful assault on the future of this country, really. And it, it's just one school, but that's in every school. It was crazy to me. Had you heard the term systemic racism before you got to America? No. Uh, I knew that there was racism in, in the U.S. And being a foreigner, you just assumed that you all had fixed it, you know? So coming into it, you, I assumed that, okay, well, they had... MLK, I've read about him and, you know, I know all the history books of how civil rights movement. And so I think coming here, I was like, okay, well, they probably got that stuff together. I think that's why we're at this moment is that this country has not done the hard work that it needed to. And that hard work actually is individuals facing their own prejudices and their own views and their own perceptions of you know, what people of color are in this country and their contribution. And, and I think that is why 2020 was just such a chaotic and a great way when it came to discussions on race. And because people have not done, we just have not done the work in the States that we pretend like we did. We mm -hmm. sold the story, we made the movies, but we had not done the real, real work that needed to be done. And I think that's why we're here right now. When you first arrived in this country, were you aware that you were seen as black or African-American and not Ethiopian? So to clarify, I was born in Ethiopia, but I'm Eritrean in every sense. That So in that region, it's where your fathers and mother are from that you're from. You, it's not where you're born. But um, this is the crazy thing is that one thing that I noticed is that my potential was not seen by teachers. There was a moment in my, um, I think it was in middle school where I said, you know, I want to go into AP classes. I had done very well in my honors class or what have you. And this woman's like, oh no, you can't handle it. And I said, why can't I handle it? I've had, you know, and she was the department head and everything. And she's like, you can't handle it. And I saw that pattern and I only saw it with the same group of people. And I think that I don't think, I actually know, I feel like this is actually probably a fact that when people look at black kids, they do not see potential. They just see, let's just get through, let's get them through this, you know, just sign up for the next year's class. We'll see how you do or what have you. They don't see potential at all. I always think about the talent gap that this is costing us. Do you remember what it did to you, if anything, to hear that teacher say, you know, this course is not for you? Yeah, I write about this a lot. I realized very early that I just did not have power in the situation. When I saw my white friends, their moms came in and were like, nope, my son, Billy, is going to get into honors and you're going to do that. You know, they demanded those things. And I created... It's very funny, actually. I created an email account of someone that, quote unquote, worked for my mom. And I gave her my friend's sister's name, which is Deborah Lube. And so Deborah Lube was the guardian wow. that would communicate on my behalf 
on my mom's behalf. <laughs> and so Deborah Loop got me through middle school and high school. And I write about that in this new book that I'm working on. I had to create this white woman that basically she wrote and talked like a white woman. Mm -hmm. She was like, I don't have time for this. Make sure how it's getting into it. And that's how I got into AP uh, Environmental. Deborah emailed the head and was like, let's not waste my time. I'm the legal guardian. Make sure that this happens. So it was a, a white person vouching for your yeah. intellect oh yeah 100 mm -hmm. percent. it's the mythical you know power that white people have mm -hmm. in this country now looking back i can't believe i was sophisticated enough in understanding the system at that age to create this advocate she demanded everything it was like if i was late deborah would be the one emailing he has a doctor's appointment sorry he's late mm -hmm. that was enough mm -hmm. and there was this trust and i knew i couldn't create like an a black person to advocate for me because there would be like questions of like, oh, who are you, you know? Mm -hmm. But I knew this, like these teachers were taught to just trust on one of their own. You trusting know? each other. Trusting each other. Oh, Deborah wouldn't lie to you. Mm -hmm. Deborah's not that kind of person. You know a Deborah. She's your neighbor. And look at Deborah helping out. Deborah is just that savior that you know you are. You know, so you found a way to navigate through these roadblocks that the system puts up for all black kids. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that America really has not done the work mm -hmm. necessary. Mm -hmm. What are the systems as you see them in place that have prevented black America from doing the work? Although the, I, it's pretty interesting, the story about Deborah, no kid should be creating a white person to help him get into an AP level class. Why not? It helped you. It helps me, but it shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean is that we haven't done the work enough. A kid should be worried about, okay, I'm doing well in school. Uh -huh. I can't wait to you know, progress. The system is only saying, oh, you're doing so well in honors. Let's move you to AP. The system should work in that way, mm -hmm. but it's not. And it's not working for one particular group of people and it's people of color. And I think my example should be one that says it should shame people that that is what a 15-year-old had to do to just go into a higher level class. Mm -hmm. It's such an example of what we are blind to in this country of the work that needs to be done. Because I tell that story and people are like, oh, that's pretty impressive. That's just that you thought about that. And I'm like, no, it's actually pretty sad. Some kids are going to give up. They're going to say, this is too much. I'll just stick with whatever is offered to me in this broken system. Mm -hmm. And that's the talent gap I always talk about. What potential did we bury by making it so hard to just achieve your maximum in this country? And this is across the board, not just in education. Mm -hmm. It's in the job market. It's the banking system. It's the housing situation. It's the inequality. And it's, it's that at some point people will give up because no one should be fighting just to exist and just to thrive. You think that's part of the job of the system to have people give up? 100%. Yeah, me too. I think that's the only way it can survive is that if you keep pushing people to corners, it's just not in our nature to keep wanting to fight. Mm -hmm. I really do believe we want to be comfortable. We want to have a good time. We want to have, live peaceful lives. Peacefully. And when a human being is being pushed every single day into a corner, 
they're just going to say, okay, well, you know what? I'll just stay at this corner mm -hmm. and just find peace in this corner. And that's the loss that we are having, that we have had and we will continue to have unless real change happens. One of the goals of SHED is to apply some therapeutic models to addressing systemic racism. And one of the models is the stages of change model. And stages of change says that all change happens in stages. The first stage being pre-contemplation. So we're not even really thinking that there's a problem. The next stage is contemplation. So now we're starting to think about it. For some reason, it's entered into our mind and we're starting to wrestle with this. The next stage is awareness. The next stage is preparation, where we start to start to figure out what are the things, what are the steps we need to do to take action. And action is the following stage. The last stage is maintenance, where we do things to maintain a change that we've made. Where do you see America as being in the stages of change model when it comes to race? Awareness. I think we're at that stage. Mm-hmm. What, what um, makes you think so? You know, with these salons, I had never seen such drastically different people all wanting to be better people hmm. that wanted to change the way that they saw this country. They saw their privilege. They saw their power. And it gave me so much hope. And what the salons did and what I pushed always is that you have to put a mirror in front of yourself because you are the reason we are in this situation. Mm -hmm. We didn't mince words about those things. There is no systemic racism without you. It needs you to survive. And I think that honest dialogue helped a lot. But why I think we're at that stage of awareness is just because I've seen it. Mm -hmm. But awareness is nothing without action. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Awet, I want to go back to your um, time with UNICEF. Any thoughts about why America, at least a large portion of America, seems to feel more inclined to help with international aid rather than tackling our problems at home? So that's a great question. And working in the humanitarian stage, it's so interesting because right now we have actually a, a new domestic program where we're trying to make sure that all states are against child marriage in the U.S. And we only have like four that have made laws to make sure that you have to be 18. One of the things that's so interesting about the US is we deflect. And we are one of the most generous countries when it comes to humanitarian work. We put our money to make sure that the world is better. But this idea of American exceptionalism is also the reason we give. We say, oh, we are so better off that we have to make sure that everybody else hmm is okay and everything. And I think the reason why we see this culture clash is that in this whole slogan of, you know, making America great or whatever, it's the same thing is that there are a group of people that have always assumed that we are exceptional and there is no problem here. We really don't have major problems here. They're all kind of just made up and people are overthinking things. And then there's groups of people who have been victimized by this system who say, it's never been okay and it's never been great, you know? It's the same people that have held power that made sure that we as a country are there to help the world because they still think that there's really not a lot of work to be done here. There is a huge population of this country that just does not believe that we do not have those issues. We shouldn't talk 
about those issues because they're really non-existent. We should go elsewhere and fix those things. We should talk about ethnic cleansing in another country. Let's talk about the Rohingya issue in South Asia. You know, let's talk about Yemen. You know, let's let's talk about Somalia. We need to fix their their situations. And then here we are, have Flint, Michigan, and we have kids that are drinking dirty water, which is against international law. We have children that are getting stopped by police for nothing more than just looking the part of, quote-unquote, a criminal. That's against international law. And there's so many things that we do as a country that we do not want to be called on. And I think marriage is one of them. You can ask all your friends, they'll be like, oh, no, child marriage should never happen in these states. But it, we can't even get all 50 states to sign off. Can you, That's can international you law. Can you tell us why? Like, what would the pushback be from a state? That is a question that we're still trying to understand. Mm-hmm. We still don't understand why the U.S. Has, is not willing to sign the rights of a child, mm-hmm. which is the declaration of what basic right that every child has mm-hmm. that UNICEF drafted in seven years ago. Every country except North Korea and us have not signed. And I think North Korea is going to sign soon. So mm-hmm. we'd like to deflect and we don't want to do the work here. And too many people think that there's not enough work to be done here. Mm-hmm. So you are a new author. I was hoping you might tell us a little bit about your book. So there's 588 people that came to the salons that wanted to be better people. And one of the things that they wanted is how do I tell the story of this summer? And how do I give people almost a blueprint how to hold these salon conversations? And Priscilla Warner and I met earlier during the kneeling process. She's a great writer. She's a New York Times bestseller. She's written great books about difficult discussions with a Palestinian herself and a Christian woman, her being a Jew. So it's it was three Right after 9-11, they all came together and had this constant dialogue. And so using that kind of powerful theme, I said, we need to tell the story of the salons, about the movement here that happened, and how much action was taken. Because throughout this, when I stood up like three days after this kneeling started, I said, this is 5% of the work that you all need to do. The kneeling is nothing if there's no action around it. It was 5% and 95% of the work is the one that you have to do. And so the salons were discomfort zones. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the book is going to be around, you know, welcoming you into the discomfort zone and you choosing to be in the discomfort zone. And what do they do with it? Mm -hmm. What actions did they do with, that discomfort. It's a beautiful thing when something new could grow out of being very uncomfortable. And this summer, it was that for everybody. So that's really what the book is highlighting. When I was protesting, whether it was on the island or in Boston or Philadelphia, I was heartened by the diversity of the group and the passion of all people that were there. The group that was most underrepresented were white males. And the topic came up in the salon that I led on the island. And one of the white men volunteered that he felt that white men saw themselves as having 
the most to lose and the least to gain by furthering the cause of Black Lives Matter. You think that's true? I think that that is a um, misunderstanding. On the part of white males? On the part of white males. Mm -hmm. This country is a country of concessions. We conceded to free people. You know, we conceded for women's right to vote. We conceded for black men to vote. We conceded for people of color to own land. Conceded for LGBTQ plus community to just have the right to love whoever they want to love. And then we conceded on top of that for marriage equality. So we're a country of concessions. In the top of the food chain, one group of people that never had to concede really is white males. Mm -hmm. This country was built up with no concession from them. Zero. They came fully free. And we're not talking about the, you know, first indulgent servants that were, you know, white male, but they mm -hmm. still could own land. They mm -hmm. still, maybe they didn't vote, but then they got the vote. Let's not get that granular. Mm -hmm. But in the essence of this country, in this concession, the history of concessions in this country, there's one group of people that never had to concede to just survive and to live freely, mm -hmm. to live to their whatever optimal at that time potential. And I think the issue that we have where people say, well, if I push for Black Lives Matter, I'm going to lose my power. It's assuming that all these people, all this time that we've conceded, power was taken away from you. Mm -hmm. When you gave women's the right to vote, or when you allowed people of color to own land, when black men were allowed to own land before anybody else, you know, not black women, your power didn't diminish. If history has taught us, you still were, became powerful. Mm -hmm. You still have the same amount of power that you had when you conceded all these freedoms. Mm -hmm. So I look at history and I'm like, history doesn't show that you lost, if anything, you kept on gaining mm -hmm. by giving people an equal playing field. And I think that for the ones that hold the most power right now, it's understanding that we are only hurting ourselves. You're hurting this country by not pushing for it. Mm -hmm. Because if history has shown us, you never lost anything by allowing people to be freer. You just never did. We've touched on, you know, throughout our interviews about the murder of George Floyd. You are in your room and you witness a murder. You are an accomplice if you do not do anything about the murder you just witnessed. And I think what happened with George Floyd is that no one can say they didn't see what happened. If you witnessed a murder in real life, you would be interrogated by the cops and you'd be used for trial as well. You'd have to testify. Now, every single white person either could choose to testify or they could choose to ignore what they saw and be accomplice to the murder. And I think this time around, a lot of white people said, I have to do the right thing. I can't be an accomplice to this. Mm -hmm. I just witnessed a murder. It's either I am part of the murder history and story, or I'm part of making sure that this never happens again. It just makes a total difference when you're in a witness to it. And that's 
you know, going back to how we how we talk about 2020, it's not the summer any of us envisioned. It's not the summer we planned, mm-hmm. but it's the summer we needed. Mm-hmm. And if you Google 2020, just 2020 vision, it's about clarity, hmm. complete clarity. And we are so fortunate this year to have lived in an era of complete and utter clarity. It's not the year we envisioned, but it's absolutely the year we needed Mm -hmm. to see everything as it was and as it needed to be seen. And that is, I think, the beauty of this year Mm. and the gift that George Floyd gave all of us. That, I think, is really a really good natural ending point. So, Awa, we really appreciate you spending some time with us today. We appreciate the work that you've done on the island and that you continue to do in New York. We appreciate more than anything who you are and how you do what you do. Thank you. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Ebby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette. 